As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Brennan to the Boca Chile, From Lummi to La Push and from the lordly Salduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 12. A Brief History of Oakville and Its Mysterious Blobs Oakville is located on the northern shore of the Chehalis River, just downstream from the convergence of the Chehalis and Black Rivers. This is an area that is subject to annual flooding with several major floods experienced over the years. To its north, Oakville is bordered by the hills of the Capitol State Forest. The area is filled with hills, valleys, rivers, and dense forests. To the east, it's bordered by the Chehalis Reservation. This tribe offers many services to its members in the community and helps to maintain the cultural heritage of the area. In 1818, the United States and Great Britain agreed to a treaty of joint occupation of the Oregon country, which included the land that would eventually become Oakville. Over the next several decades, over the next several decades, citizens of the United States began to settle in this area. As traveling by boat was far easier than moving through the dense forests, many used the river system. They entered from the port of Grays Harbor and canoed inland via the Chehalis River. The British government gave full ownership of the area to the United States in 1846. In 1850, the land now occupied by Oakville was mainly an open prairie, and was maintained by yearly fires that were started deliberately by local tribes, which kept the forest from encroaching and encouraged the bloom of camas, a staple food, and other plants. This open land was extremely attractive to settlers that were arriving in the area. The native people of the area were very helpful to the settlers, and towns began to be platted up and down the Chehalis River. In the 1870s, a party of several families relocated to the area from Crawford County, Illinois. The leader of the party, James Reed Harris, had purchased the donation claim from the area from John Hole for $1,200. He applied for a post office, and after some discussion, it was decided to use the name Oakville, inspired by the Gary Oak trees that were in the area. The post office opened on December 1, 1873. Logging and railroad construction soon brought other settlers to the area, the plat of the city was filed on September 27, 1887, while Washington Territory was still two years away from gaining its statehood. Around 1890, the Northern Pacific Railway began to lay tracks through the town. By the turn of the century, a Northern Pacific train station had been established in the city and the area had several general stores, a new school, and a couple of hotels. Oakville would officially incorporate on December 18, 1905. In 1909, a report by the Railroad Commission of Washington described Oakville. Oakville is a town of about 400 inhabitants, 
located on the line of the Northern Pacific Trailer in the center of an important lumbering and taking district. The timber resources of this section are of immense value and the bottomlands are well adapted to general farming. Oakville is a growing town and will develop more rapidly as the resources of the surrounding district are more thoroughly exploited. Lumber was a major industry in the early days of the city, and in 1916, Oakville Lumber Company, Big Fur Lumber Company, Vance Lumber Company, and others were in operation along with the Callow Mill. The city was noted for large shipments of cascara bark. Factories were also part of the town's economy, with the E.H. Hilton & Company Oiled Clothes Factory in operation by 1915 and the Oakville Cooperative Cheese Company incorporating a few years later. Other businesses in the early days of the town included a jewelry store, a shoe company, and a hardware store. The city's librarian, Clara Trudgeon, had been appointed by the state traveling library by 1908, making Oakville eligible to be a recipient of one of the 150 cases of books that the state had in rotation. The weekly newspaper was the Oakville Cruiser. By 1919, the city had an active community center, and the high school offered classes for students in four grades. The historic Oakville State Bank was incorporated on the 14th of August, 1909 by C.R. Harper and C.C. Skates. Skates would become the bank's first cashier, while Harper's shares were acquired by Colonel William T. Perkins the following year in 1910. Perkins managed the business as president until the 1920s. Following a spate of financial mismanagement that included carrying overdrafts and unauthorized loans in 1929 and 1930, the bank would be sold in 1931 to the Guarantee Bank of Centralia Group. Between 1950 and 1972, the firm changed its name several times, becoming Tenino Oakville Bank in 1950, Thurston County Bank in 1961, and finally, the Bank of Olympia in 1972. In 1981, it merged with Puget Sound National Bank. Interestingly, it is said to be the last bank in the Evergreen State to be robbed by a rider on a horseback, which occurred in 1938. The city has commemorated this throughout the years by hosting reenactments of the robbery, with groups competing to give the best performance every 4th of July. As of 2018, Oakville's main businesses included a small grocery store, a few diners, an organic bedding manufacturer, an auction house, and a chip plant, as well as some farms on the outskirts of town. Oakville is also home to the annual Zucchini Jubilee and hosts a harvest festival in the fall and an annual St. Patrick's Day dinner. Oakville was once the home of two notable women, the first being Hazel Pete, a Chehalis tribal member known for her renowned skill in basket weaving, and the accomplished paleontologist Catherine Van Winkle Palmer, who was born in Oakville in 1895. Oakville is often referred to as a frontier logging town nestled between two centuries. On the 7th of August, 1994, at about 3 a.m., a heavy rain began to fall, blanketing a 20-square-mile area, though it is a rather common experience. In fact, it rains over 260 days a year in Oakville, but this was not rain. Residents began to note that it was not water, but a strange, gelatinous substance that they had never seen before. Over a period of three weeks, it fell a total of six times. At the time it first began, 
Officer David Lacey was on patrol with a civilian friend. When he turned his windshield wipers on, they smeared it against the windshield instead of washing it away. The obscured windshield forced him to pull into a gas station to try and clean it manually after donning a pair of latex gloves for safety, of course. Officer David Lacey went on to say, The substance was very mushy. It's almost like if you had jello in your hand and you could pretty much squash it through your fingers. We did have some bells go off in our heads that basically said that this isn't right, this isn't normal. We turned our windshield wipers on and it just started smearing to the point where we could almost not see. And we both looked at each other and we said, geez, this isn't right. I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere, basically, and where did this come from? Local resident Dottie Hearn stepped outside after it had stopped and noticed that it was everywhere. At first, it looked like hailstones to her, but when she touched it, she noticed that it had an odd, gelatinous texture. By the afternoon of that day, David, Dottie, and various other residents had become mysteriously and violently ill. They described having difficulty breathing, extreme vertigo, blurred vision, and an increasing sense of nausea. Beverly Roberts, another resident, said that everyone in town contracted a flu-like illness that lasted for two or three months. Additionally, several cats and dogs that came into contact with the substance fell ill and died. An hour after first noticing her symptoms, Dottie was found sprawled on her bathroom floor, conscious but very weak. Her daughter, Sonny Barcliffe, described her as feeling cold and sweat-drenched and looking quite pale. She was moved to the hospital where she stayed for three days and was diagnosed with a severe inner ear infection. As Dottie was being moved to the hospital, Sonny remembered seeing odd rain fall at her farmhouse and, in fact, thinking there might be a connection to Dottie's illness, collected a sample and sent it to the hospital. Also, in addition to the coincidental symptoms experienced by the humans involved, a kitten Barcliffe had reportedly died after coming into contact with one of these blobs following a battle of severe intestinal problems. Barcliffe, as well as a friend, experienced minor episodes of fatigue and nausea after handling the blobs themselves. Despite this, the doctor who treated Barcliffe's mother, Dr. David Little, expressed his doubt that these blobs were the cause for the symptoms. Instead, they could have resulted from an inner ear condition. Hearn herself conceded that the timing of the blobs' appearance and their symptoms could be nothing more than a coincidence. A lab technician later examined the blobs Sonny Barcliffe brought in and found that it contained human white blood cells but could not identify what it was or how it came from the sky. Overall, the blobs rained down on Oakville six times in three weeks. The sample was quickly sent to the Washington State Department of Health for further study. Mike McDowell, a microbiologist, noted that it was teeming with two species of bacteria, one of which lives in the human digestive system. Because of Mike's findings, it was initially speculated to be human waste from an airplane but Federal Aviation Administration regulations required it to be dyed blue while the blobs were perfectly clear. Furthermore, regulations forbade pilots from releasing this blue ice in mid-flight. Upon further investigation by the Washington State Department of Ecology's Hazardous Material Spill Response Unit, these cells from the blobs were also found to have no nuclei. 
Nearly a year after Dottie fell ill, she mailed a sample she had stored in her freezer to Amtest Laboratories, a private research lab. There, while analyzing it, Tim Davis, another microbiologist, believed he saw a eukaryotic cell, a complex nucleus-containing cell that are present in most living creatures. This meant that it was, or had been, alive. One popular theory goes on to say that the blobs were the result of bombing runs done by the nearby military in the ocean 50 miles from the farm, which could have caused an explosion within a group of jellyfish that then got dispersed into a rain cloud. Although not many people believe this particular theory as the answer, it nonetheless became so popular within the community that it prompted the discussion of holding a jellyfish festival even leading to the concoction of a new drink in honor of the strange incident. The drink in question, dubbed the jellyfish, is comprised of vodka, gelatin, and juice. While the Air Force confirmed that they were doing practice bombing runs over the Pacific in August of 1994, they deny any knowledge of the substance or any involvement in curating or dispersing it. Oakville residents are skeptical of this. Prior to it, Many noticed a significant, almost daily, amount of slow-moving military aircraft in the skies above. Some believe that Oakville was the site of a military experiment designed to test a new biological weapon or to test the possible damage of a biological attack on U.S. soil. It's interesting to note that no samples of the substance exist today. It's possible that the blobs didn't fall from the sky at all and simply appeared on the ground overnight. A similar substance called star jelly has been mentioned in scientific reports and poetry since at least the 17th century. Substances that people have called star jelly have come from a variety of sources, including amphibians, algae, slime molds, and even crystals of sodium polyacrylate, which is sometimes used in agriculture. In fact, in 2012, sodium polyacrylate absorbed water from a storm to form gelatinous blobs in Bournemouth, England. Maybe the Oakville blobs were something similar. All in all, that is the story of the mystery goo-like substance that rained down on an evergreen state city multiple times over three weeks, where dozens of human residents reportedly got sick with severe flu-like symptoms. The biggest enigma left behind if still unexplained, is that no one knows what these blobs were or where they came from, with all evidence now gone, i.e. evaporated, and the Washington Department of Health proclaims that no such records of the samples received exist today. This story was so popular, in fact, that it was even featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries back in the day. Could I just say I loved that show? And I went back and rewatched it making this episode, and it was a blast. You might have noticed that today's episode is a bit on the short side of things, and I just I had to take a sort of a break because the the catastrophe of the steamer Pacific ended up taking me multiple hours to record and edit. So I needed something smaller to be the next week so I can kind of have a break. Next week's episode should be a bit more longer and more in detail, so look out for that coming next Wednesday night. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review, and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include Medium.com, Wikipedia.org, VaxLegend.org, Unsolved Mysteries, 
hoaxerfacts.com, and the Museum of History and Industry. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. Thank you for listening to Episode 12, A Brief History of Oakville and Its Mysterious Blobs. Episode 13 will be released next week. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. That email address can be found in the episode description, in addition to the link to Buy Me a Coffee, which offers you, the listener, the opportunity to support the show and keep it going. One-time and monthly donations will go towards research material to assist me in continuing to put out these episodes. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck, the singing Stilliguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck, and Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.